You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley, titled Consequences and Hope, from the series Foundations. For more info, visit creekside.org. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to conclude this chapter this week, talking about consequences and, and hope. Last week we walked through the first part, the temptation and the fall, with the first family, Adam and Eve, and so now we want to look at the results, the consequences of, those, of the fall. We understand that uh, our actions always have consequences. For every action, there's a reaction, so we want to talk about that today. So Lord, we come, come humbly, we come, Lord, before your word, ask that it would speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, and give us hope in the person of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's always consequences, and we see the damage, this fellowship is interrupted. But what I want you to see today is how quickly our Heavenly Father entered the scene, and and, and he exposes Adam and Eve and Satan and us today, uh, gives us the first glimpse of the gospel of grace and the work of Christ. And see how quickly God deals with sin. Why? Well, because God is holy. He's perfect. They've been walking with him, but they've been walking with him because they were created in perfection. But now their sin and their disobedience has broken that. And because of that, you can't walk with this totally perfect and holy God in this state of sinfulness. Isaiah 59.2 says this, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. That's why we need Jesus, because this holy God needs an intermediary. He needs an, uh, we need an advocate. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says that we have this advocate who stands in our stead, even before the enemy of our soul, but also between him and, and, and the Father. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees the imputed or the placed upon or the given to righteousness that we receive when we receive Jesus Christ. So here we see in, in, in Genesis the separation between God and Adam and Eve. Psalm 5, 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil with you for, you, for in wickedness you cannot dwell. See, God no longer can dwell with Adam and Eve, so he has to begin now to set all of these things in motion, not only because of his holiness, but he also wants to cover and protect and to redeem humanity. And so we're going to see how he does that today. I think that every one of us in this room would agree that things are not right in this world. Probably most of us, if, as I noted last week, we could probably even attest to and agree that things aren't necessarily right in our own lives. That we still deal with so many different things that are difficult and we're, we're waging war and we're still fighting against them. But see, the reason that the world really is so askew, it's because of this story we're reading last week and today, but really it's because humanity is at, at the heart of the problem. Over 27 million people are still enslaved, many of them women and children who are being sexually abused and trafficking. There's over a billion people today that live in extreme poverty. They're living on less than a dollar a day. There's, there's 25,000 children who die Every day, every day of starvation, dirty water, and treatable diseases like malaria. There's another 2 billion people who live on just $2 a day, which is simply just a scratch 
above extreme poverty. So when people ask, well, why do you receive this harvest offering right there, just in those points, we'll tell you why. Mother Teresa said that, you know, that, that all the problems, all the things in this world is, it's like, a, it's like a vast ocean. And all we can do is just a little drop. But without that little drop, it's not complete. And maybe we can only help two or 10 or 100 or 500 families or people. But that's more that'll be helped than if we don't do anything. And so that's why we give. We understand that wars are wage, that wars rage today and they're waged and often it's, it's, it's the non-combatants who suffer more, most. It's the collateral damage around them. Millions of people live in squalor and refugee settlements. They're uprooted and they're separated from their home and their family today. God, this is, this, this, this is the one that, that I live with all the time. Drug abuse and addiction and domestic violence continue to destroy more lives and families and communities. I mean, I, there's not a week that goes by that I don't almost see something in that realm that's affecting humanity. There's human cruelty and violence. And it's all awful, whether it's the Holocaust of the Holocaust of the last century or it's the school violence that we face today or the terrorism that just seems to be scream across the front pages of our newspapers we saw even just two days ago in Paris Paris France why is that it's not because of the cosmos it's because of people it's because of the heart and the evil of people I could go on I don't need to convince you what's wrong in the world we all see it whether it's in relationships or between countries but it's all because of the consequences, loved ones, of the fall, because we're going to get into it next week in chapter 4 where we just begin to see how this all breaks down. And, you know, we want to talk about evolution. Evolution about us evolving and getting better. You know, we get smarter, we get wiser, we get richer. We get more advanced, but isn't it interesting? We're still going south very quickly in terms of humanity and the way we treat and kill and maim and hurt. So Genesis chapter 3, we saw and left it off where Adam and Eve, they started playing this blame game. And they were blaming each other, blaming God, blaming the serpent. And so God says, okay, let me just interrupt you here. And let me kind of begin to set the record straight. So this is what happens in verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. Noted last week, we believe that it's probable that, uh, that the serpent was actually an upright type animal and then part of the curse is that he was cursed to be on the ground. That this being, this, or this being, not this being, but this, this animal of some sort was inhabited by Satan who Satan spoke through him to be able to, to deceive Eve. So you're cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And he says, and I will put, and here's one of the most important verses in the Bible. You wouldn't know this by just kind of quickly reading it, but hopefully I can help you understand why it is. Because this, this scripture, this, this, this series on foundations, this is foundational to all that we believe. God says, I will put hostility, enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he this is speaking of Jesus. He will strike your head. Some of your uh, translations say he will crush your head. And you will strike his 
heal. So we see here God gives this first, he proclaims his first curse to the, to the deceiver, the enemy of your soul, Satan. So we get to, another one bites the dust right here. So what happens? He's cursed and now he's going to have to, he's going to have to kind of slither along the ground uh, through until time ends. As a matter of fact, I believe it's Isaiah 64, 65, or 66. It's talking about the millennial reign when God sets up a new heaven and a new earth and everything kind of gets returned back to its, its vibrancy and its same form of, of, of the garden. There's one thing that doesn't get changed back and the serpent is actually still one who will crawl on the ground. I, I don't know about you, but I, I have two phobias. You got any phobias? I have two. Here's mine. Heights and snakes. When I was a little boy, I used to have to mow this. We had this acre that we lived on and had to mow it. And we had these two little grape vineyards that went down, I don't know, probably 75 yards on each side. And, and I'd have to, probably 50 yards, but uh, probably 25, I'm a lot older than I don't know. <laughs> but they were like forever, you know? And, I, and I'd have to mow them and then I'd have to go clip around them. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm daydreaming while I'm just kind of doing this, you know, pretty crazy work. And and, and it was a lot of grass around there. So in, up in Oregon, there's always these gardener snakes that would come slithering out and just scare the weebie-jeebies out of me. And it just, I mean, it just shocked me. And I think that that's, I think that phobia of snakes comes from two things, there and then this passage, you know. And, and I think it's probably true because why, why are most people afraid of snakes? It's because, well, we, we realize that uh, they're dangerous, some of them. But it's kind of this picture and a reminder of the fall. Now, some of you, if I offended you by, by that, I don't mean to, because I know there's some people that like want reptiles, big snakes. Matter of fact, my older son wanted a boa constrictor, and I said that's from hell. So we're, <laughs> we are, and that's how I got out. We're not having a snake in this house because I don't want to wake up one day and there's a slithering snake running around my house. But I know some people like them. The Lord bless you. But this verse here, chapter, so that's the, that's the, that's the curse on the animal, on the, on the snake, the serpent. But he says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. Now, he talks about this thing about her seed and their seed. I'm going to strike your head, and you're going to strike his heel. In the Latin, they have a name for this. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It means the first gospel. It's here where the first good news, or the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being proclaimed. God is speaking to Satan, and he speaks of this enmity and this hostility and this hatred. It's like a blood feud that's going to take place this deep-seated dislike between Satan and Eve, between Satan's emissaries and, the, and those that have sprung forth from him, and then the seed of Eve and all of the offspring that come from Eve. And God's really kind of saying here, he says, you know something, dude, you really miscalculated this thing. You shouldn't have done this because now this is what I'm going to do. And so he begins to pronounce his judgment on him, but he sketches out this powerful prophetic proclamation And he shows that there's going to be this long-term struggle, that there's going to be this enmity and this hostility that takes place between the enemy and then the the, the offspring of Eve, which is us. Why is that? Well, we see that today. That's the very things that I wrote about. Because, see, everything Satan does, his his whole bent, his whole leanings, his whole purpose is to make sure that the apple of God's eye doesn't follow God. I really believe that he believed Adam and Eve would ally with him and follow him after they fell. But God steps in. That's what God does today. He steps into every one of our lives. 
And he says, I want you to follow me. I'm coming after you. I'm pursuing you. I want you to follow after me. But you see, the scripture says we're the apple, excuse me, of God's eye. We're, We're made in his image. When you look in the, the apple of the eye, the idea in the Hebrews, you'd go in there and you'd see this reflection when you looked into it. And because we're made in the image of God, there's this reflection of his life. And so what Satan wants to do is he wants to take every one of us down because when he does that, it becomes a notch in his belt and he can kind of see God, they're going to follow me. So that's where all this enmity and strife and hatred comes from. But Satan, it says, will cause some suffering. Not only will he take people from God, lead them astray as he did Adam and Eve, but it says here he'll be striking the heel of Jesus. He'll bruise the heel of Jesus. Remember Isaiah 53, 5 talks of his bruising. That Jesus would be bruised and wounded for our iniquities. Although he will die, it will simply be a temporary setback is what happens. Jesus dies for our sins on the cross, and then he resurrects on the third day. And what does that do? That seals the deal. Listen, we are in a battle. You and I, we talked about that. We're in a spiritual battle. We are in spiritual battles from the day we're born till the day we die. But guess what? Because Jesus died and resurrected, he is the triumphant offspring of, of, of Eve. And because of that, We win the war. We win the war. And we got battles along the way, but we win. That's what Easter is all about. But I want you to notice this other offspring part or seed or reference to the woman. It's kind of a strange term because women are never the seed generator. Who is it? That's the man. It's the man that that impregnates her with the seed. But here it's linked to the woman. And the seed will continue from a woman, it says. So there's really kind of this supernatural intonation that's being placed on this passage. It's a reference to Jesus. It's subtle, but it's a strong foreshadowing of the specific detail concerning the plan of salvation, which is what? The virgin birth that makes Jesus fully God. How is that? Because it wasn't a seed of man that impregnated her. It was the immaculate conception. It was the miracle of God, where God the Holy Spirit came and impregnated Mary. Therefore, we understand God. Jesus became fully God, impregnated by the Holy Spirit, but he was also fully man because he was born of a virgin. So what we're seeing here is, is just in the, very, in the very early part of this, the foundation is simply God is showing us that while all men's seed can be traced back to Adam, this is the one man that can't. Everyone except for Jesus was born from a man, but he was conceived by the Spirit of God. So God now turns to the woman. He says to the woman, <laughs> this is where it'd be fun just to do something like fun in the Psalms today, you know? But uh, we come to this passage, so we get to, we get to walk through it. He says, I will intensify your ladies. Speaking to the women now, he's speaking to you ladies. I'm going to intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. And your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. It starts with, you know, the greatest joy that you can have as a woman, I think, is is what is having a child. 
giving birth to something that has been conceived in you and then comes from you. But he says that because of that, you're going to, in childbearing, you're going to have this great and this intensified pain. And there's a powerful principle that, uh, about sin here, that with that which, uh, whatever, what sin does in every area of our life today, it will always cause pain. It may not be immediate, but it will ultimately cause pain in our lives. But if I'm a lady, uh, one comedian said this, if a guy wants to just begin to understand the pain that childbirth, uh, childbearing produces, he said this, take your lower lip and stretch it all the way over your head into the back down to your neck and you'll begin to get just an idea. And of course, second service, one lady said, that's not true, it's a lot more. But I wonder what, can you imagine, ladies, what would it have been like? What would it have been like? What would it have been like if you didn't have as much pain? I don't know how God would have done it, but he says that because of the curse, I'm going to intensify that. So every time we see a snake slithering, every time we, we get birth to a child, it's a reminder of the curse, of the consequences of our disobedience. And then she says, well, then God says to, to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. You're going to have kids. There's going to be a little bit of pain. But you know what? You're still going to desire your husband. You're going to want to be with him. You're going to want to walk with him. You're going to want to give yourself to him. But in that relationship, it's changed too. Guess what's going to happen? He's going to rule over you. Now, now these, the, these words sound pretty, pretty strong. And so I want to just unpack them for a couple of, of moments for you. He shall rule over you. What he's saying is, you know, you're gonna, there's going to be this relationship, relationship of submission to him where you align yourself with him, where you're going to respond to his leadership. First Timothy 2 talks about this, and it says that part of that curse is because Eve was deceived. God brings this relationship into this different dimension of, of, of submission and, and leadership. Uh, over the years, I think I've probably done over 100 weddings now. And I hit Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through about 30, pretty hard in a, in a wedding ceremony. And I've kind of had to just, just tweak them a little bit uh, as, as the years go by. Because probably, in a, let's say 100 and some weddings, I think I've had three or four ladies come up to me afterwards when I used the term, and wives, submit to your husbands. I'm a nice guy. I was dressed nice, um, sweet as could be. It's a wedding. And these gals still come up to me and they would go, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? You are asking her to submit to him? That is archaic and that is wrong. No woman should ever submit to a man. And I go, well, I'm just the, you know, I just, I'm, I'm the messenger, okay? You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, take it up with God, but they never do. It always comes back to me. And maybe there's somebody, and there's probably somebody here today that will want to take it up with me afterwards as well. And that's all right. It's a difficult saying for people inside the church, and it's definitely a difficult thing for a person to swallow outside of the church. Hear me, hear me. God's not saying that this woman is inferior. She's not to be treated as a slave. She's not less than. He's not smarter than. He's not better than. He's not stronger than. It's a place of position. It's the order of creation. God, God created man first. It's the only reason. Most of you women in here are smarter than us guys. 
But because of position, because of God's creative order, he says. And you know, have you ever, have you ever seen a two-headed something? You know, you're going to see it in Ripley's Believe It or Not. It's, it's weird. It's, it's, it's out of order. It's not right. It's not good. So God's saying there has to be in his creative order and process and part of this curse that there's got to be a head. There's got to be somebody that is, is leading the way. Now hear me, ladies and guys. This is not where the guy is the uh, dictator or even a benevolent dictator. He's not the CEO. He's not the one that comes home and calls the shots and sits down and everybody serves him and takes care of him. This is a position of equality where she stands by her husband, not under him. She completes her husband. She doesn't compete with him. And I believe that God sets this up. You know why? Because I see so many marriages. I see so many couples. They just don't do well together. They don't have a good rhythm. They don't know how to, how to relate to one another in a godly way. It's so when you have these two people that are always competing and fighting, where they don't have someone who says, you know something, I trust your leadership. What do they do? They're fighting. They're always at loggerheads. And pretty soon they begin, what starts off as going like this, pretty soon it separates and everybody gets their corner and it just becomes a Cold War detente. And they begin to live together. And so God says, you know what, I'm going to set up a positional thing where maybe, just maybe, you're going to have to learn to do it my way and look to me and learn how to do this delightful divine dance of leadership in your home. So when he says, wives, be submitted to your husbands as, 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 Christ, as, as, as the church is to Christ, it's an invitation. It's not a demand. The idea of submission there is is this mutual submission because before verse 22 is 521 where it says that we are to be submitted to one another. Before Trina and I got married, we, we, under, we began to understand this, that we were going to be submitted to one another because you know why? She's God's daughter. Ladies in here, before you were ever the, 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 the wife of that husband, you're God's daughter. Guys, before you were ever the husband of that wife, you're God's son. And if we really believe that and we understand that, that will totally change the way that we treat our spouse. I'm not dealing with my wife. I'm dealing with God's daughter first. I'm not dealing with a man. I'm dealing with God's son. And see, what we learn to do in that is we see the, the great and the dynamic value of every person. So when God says, before, I want you to learn to submit to one another, you learn to, that it's not about position per se, but it's about relationship. And so what you learn to do is, guys, you, you learn to pray with your wife. You learn to talk with your wife. You learn to listen to your wife. And then you learn to do this thing called mutual submission. But there's always going to come those times in a marriage where you go, man, we just can't agree on this. 
And it's at that point where God says, okay, here's where I want you to trust me, ladies. I want you to step back and I want you to trust that man that you've chosen and I've placed in your life. And that's what you do. Now hear me. You know what that that does? That puts an incredible responsibility on you guys. Puts a responsibility on you to make sure that you're hearing from God. I don't do a lot of things right in my life, but I've tried to always hear God for my family and for this church. And the one thing I can say is I've really never made a bad decision in my home. And that sounds bragging, but it's just, I I, I grew up in such an explosive, bad home. I just said, I don't want to see that kind of stuff happen in my life. And so I said, I'm going I'm to hear God. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm not saying perfectly, but I've just never made these really bad decisions that my wife wouldn't trust me. So I have all these chips in the corner that, that whatever she told me two years ago, she loves you guys like crazy. She loves this church. Every time we'd ever move, it was always downwardly mobile. and It was always in ministry. And every time we'd move, she'd just be so satisfied and happy and loving in one place. This is the greatest. And then she, I'd come home and say, I think the Lord's given us this opportunity. No. And then we'd pray and we'd talk and she'd say, okay, I think it's, let's go. And we'd go down and then, we'd, but then God just quickly brought us. See, because God was always in it, she trusts me. She'd come home two years ago and she said, honey, love where we are, love what we're doing, but if you ever want to leave, just let me know and I'll pack and we'll go. And guys, that's what you want. You want to follow Jesus and you want to hear from Jesus so that when he says something, you do it. And then your wife, she has such trust and complete confidence that you're hearing from God. This whole submission and rule over, those words don't even come into play. There's just this, there's just simply this rhythm to your lives that goes beyond the scope of what God says to the spirit of how you live with him, under him, and together. And then more than ever, the woman, she can be the heart of the home and the guy, you can be the head that lovingly leads because you're loving her like Jesus loves the church. And you're not demanding and dictating, you're just simply loving and leading because you communicate with her. Throughout history, still today, there's been so much abusive treatment of women. They've been subjugated and there's little regard throughout history for their feelings and their needs. But this harsh rule should have never been and should never be under the, under the rule wherever Christ is proclaimed and the Bible is taught. Christianity, where it's truly preached and practiced, should liberate every person. That's what Jesus did. That's why when some men wanted to stone a woman who was caught in adultery, he said, no, no, honey, listen. I'm going to forgive your sins, but I want you to go and sin no more. Wherever Jesus went against the backdrop of the Grecian culture that would just use and abuse women, against the Roman Empire that would use and abuse women, Jesus elevated this place of womanhood. And that's what the church has to do, and that's what, and that's what men, that's what we have to do. The most fulfilled couples in this church are the ones that they understand the scope of this, but they live in the spirit of how Jesus wants us to live. 
when a man does this, I have not seen a marriage yet fall apart or break up where there was this really understanding of this rhythm of leadership and, and, and alignment and submission. I've never seen a woman yet that says, boy, I, I don't like this guy who loves me like Jesus. You know? So it's really important. Ladies, stand with him and stand for him and stand by him. Guys, love her, lead her like Jesus leads us, the church. And that'll bring great, not only great security, but an ability to align your hearts and lives. Well, then he turns to the man and he says this. And God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. And he says, because of that, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. You will return to the ground since you were taken from it, and you were, are dust, and you will return to dust. So what he's saying there, he's showing what death happens, the process of death. He says, I brought you out of that dust, now you're going to go back to it. That's what happens. We're buried today. Our body just decomposes into it. Now, when, when he said this to Eve and Adam, or, or Adam in Genesis chapter 2, he said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, he didn't die, did he? Adam and Eve didn't die. Yes, they did. They died spiritually because there was separation from God. But now he's taken them to this process of where they're going to die physically because that was something that really wasn't, wasn't on the table until after they fall. So God says to him the first issue, he says, you know what? Part of this curse is for listening to your wife. You just said that we had this mutual submission and it's not to dictate. Does this mean I don't listen to my wife? <coughs> Excuse me. No, 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 no. doesn't mean that. See, what he's doing is he's chastising the consequences of his disobedience for listening to his wife when he didn't listen to what God had already told him. What God's saying is don't ever... You're, you don't, don't listen to your wife above my word. Don't listen to anybody above my word. I think we see that. I see that. And it always causes difficulties in marriages. See, God gives clear direction for the man that he is to be the loving leader of his home. I see guys who just kind of, families who fall off the face of the map at Creekside. What happened? Oh, you know, my wife just got tired of going to church. And? Well, you know, happy wife, uh, happy life. So I just, you know, I stayed home with her, go shopping or do whatever. Oh, really? Oh, sure. Happy wife, happy life. You're kidding me. What does God say about that? Well, I know, but, you know, I don't want to, it's just easier to go with the stream, you know, let's not fight it. Go home and maybe some of you will talk about the harvest offering today. Well, you know what? We, I, I, read, I, I need this new coach purse. Come on, man. No, we need to give to the harvest. No, no, man, I want the kids. They need some new, you know, Jordans or something. Okay. So what does a man do? See, at the moment that he begins to acquiesce to the woman's voice instead of what God's clearly stated at him, and he begins to no longer lead his wife and his family, that's when problems happen. 
That's when pain comes in. That's when sin slides in. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. And God says, because of that, Adam, you didn't lead your home. You listened to your wife instead of listening to me. And men, you, 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 you got to be so loving, but you got to be strong. And you've got to lead. Because sometimes women do want to rise up and rule and, you know, take the lead. But you've got to be like Jesus. I says, I've said to a number of guys, okay, if she doesn't want to go, then just get up in the morning and look at her and go, honey, I'm going to church. Are you going to go? No, I'm going to go shopping. Okay. I'm going to go to church. Well, she ain't going to like that. Okay. I know it's hard, but God says, I, you, you, you'll fam- if you do it right, guys, I believe this. 98% of the time, there's always two, 98%, your, your wife will follow you. She will follow your lead. Second thing he says is Adam has to put in a harder day work. No longer is he going to have it made in the shade as he did before, will he? Now he's got to work the ground. See, now, now hear me, the, the curse isn't work because God gave them work to do in Genesis 1 and 2, where he says you're going to subdue the earth, you're going to take care of everything. But he says now there's going to be a little bit of a shift. It's going to be harder. What's going to happen is now you're not just going to go dinner, lunch, lunch, breakfast, where you just kind of naturally reach up to this ripe, wonderful fruit. He says now part of the process, as things begin to change, now you're going to be stooped over. You're going to be tilling the ground. You're going to be cutting back the weeds. And in the process, now you're going to begin to sweat. It's going to take on a little bit different dimension. You're going to be stooped over. Now you're going to have to work hard. The field that you live in is going to be different, and it's going to respond differently to the way that you subdue it. We still see that today, don't we? The fields that we have a tendency to live in, I mean to work in. How many times does the lady lovingly say to her husband, man, my husband, he just won't slow down. I just wish he would slow down so that we could, you know, we could have a little walk together. We could have a little talk together. We could have a little time together. All he does is he's driven to work. Well, I got a verse for you. Now you know why. Now, like I said last week, there's a difference between an excuse and a reason. So now I'm going to take your excuse away from you. And now it's a reason, but you can't use it for an excuse. So what is a loving husband going to do when he starts hearing that from his wife? Most of us just say, I got to work. Back off. Quit nagging me. Instead, now you got to learn to say, okay, honey, listen, I've got this full court press in my life right now. The job is busting my chops i got to work 12 or 14 hours a day. See, I, you know, people, listen, it's not the hours that you work. There's some people that can put in 18 hours. And there's some people, that, you know, man, they work five, and it's like, oh, are you kidding me? It's not the hours. It's what you do with it. So here's what you do. This is what a loving husband does. This is what a husband who's a leader does. He takes his little bride, and he says, let's sit down, and let's come up with a plan, and let's talk about this. You just got to know. For the next three months, I am going to have a full court press on me to get this, this program or this process or this thing taken care of. So this is what I need you to do. I just need you to pray with me and to encourage me to get through it. And in three months, 
It'll be done. But in between that time, here's what I need. I need you to pray for me. And when I am home, I will be home to the best of my ability. And if I got something I got to do, I'll come home and I'll throw my phone on the table and say, I got two calls at this time, but just work with me. And then when I'm done, I'll give you time because you're the most important thing. But this job, I mean, it's our living. And you begin to, you begin to walk your bride through that. And then you say, don't forget, it's the curse, you know? <laughs> but see, that's how you lead through those kinds of things. You don't just look at them and say, I bear up, I got to do it too. You give them hope that it's not the end, that it's always going to be like this. But it is part of the curse. So here, let me close with the heart of God. We see God's judgment and we see his mercy come. See, people, when they read the Bible, some of you, when you read the Bible, all you see is the negative stuff about God. But here, they disobey. Oh, he's kicking them out of the garden. He's mad at them. He's making them work hard, pain. But, but, well, yeah, there's consequences. If you have kids, you understand that. If you were a kid, you understand that. But he's going to come back and he says, let me show you some mercy. Grace is this, God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. They deserve, listen, if I was God, I would have said, boom, start over. But no, he says, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem this situation. I'm going to make it right. And so here's what he says to them then. So Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made clothing out of skins. What do you have to do to make clothing out of skins? Kill something. Yeah. So we see the first death here. To make clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, since men has become like one of us knowing good and evil. Speaking of us, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God becoming like us. He must not reach out and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then he drove man out. We see the first automobile there. (laughs) He drove him out. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. So he drove him out of the east of the garden and then he stationed cherubim in a flaming, whirling sword. We see the first weapon there to guard the way to the tree of life. What incredible grace. Need to see something here. Again, if, you just, if you're just blowing through the scriptures and you don't take time to think, a cursory reading you'll miss. This is the first death in scripture. These people had never seen bloodshed. All of a sudden, God, however he does it, I don't know, he takes something. He takes this animal and he kills it. Starts bleeding. Who knows, maybe it started squealing. I can't say this unequivocally. I believe it was a lamb because of the way God works, but he kills this animal. Can't you just, and then he he says, take off your fig leaves. Here, put these on. God, what what are you doing? I mean, we've been walking in the cool of the evening, and he does this thing to shatter or probably to, to speak to their minds and said, this is what sin does. We know today, Romans says this, that the wages of sin is death. Wherever there's sin, there's going to be death. So God does the unthinkable, but he does this in all of his grace and his mercy, and he clothes them. This first death provides the first covering of sin for mankind, and it points to the ultimate death of, of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says this, that he 
will remember our sins no more. That's the power of what Jesus does. See, early on throughout the Old Testament, all the sacrifice is covered. But when Jesus came, it says that he's going to remove the sins. We can never cover our own nakedness. We cannot cover our own reproach, loved ones. We can't do it in our homemade ways. We got people all the time that are trying to do that, don't they? If I just go to church, throw up a few prayers here and there. Maybe if I just throw a couple bucks in the basket. If I'm just a good person, you know, God will just ultimately kind of weigh out the universal scales of justice. He doesn't do that. He says there's one way. What we want to cover up, God will always uncover. What you uncover, God will always cover. And so he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you these skins. That's what he does for this couple. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ. This is the proto-evangelium. This is the redemptive act in process. He takes this lamb or this animal and he does it for a couple in Exodus chapter 12 at the Passover. He says, listen, I want you to sacrifice an animal. I want you to paint, the, uh, I want you to paint your doorpost with blood. And what's going to happen is, is the death angel will pass through and your family will be saved. And then you come to Leviticus 16. A lamb is sacrificed on the day of atonement. The day of Yom Kippur. God says, I'm going to save and I'm going to take care of your nation. Then we see the fulfillment of Genesis 3 right here in John 1.29 where John the Baptist sees Jesus come and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A couple, a family, a nation, the world. You and me. He died for each of us personally as well. Isaiah 61.10 says that we are clothed with garments of salvation. We're arrayed in robes of righteousness. The salvation, the, the garments is Jesus. The robes come from the power and the life of Jesus Christ. Every day